What motives might major power interests have had in seeking the murder of Robert Kennedy 50 years ago? What distinguishes the assassination of Robert Kennedy from other high-profile assassinations like that of his famous brother, John, and of Reverend Martin Luther King? Is there evidence that conclusively establishes the innocence of accused murderer Sirhan Sirhan? Could Robert Kennedy Jr.'s skepticism of the official story behind his father's death make a difference in terms of revealing the truth 50 years after that incident? What are the realistic prospects that any judicial body will hold an evidentiary hearing of the assassination? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we mark the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Senator and presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy with two interviews questioning the official story of his death. We get some of the political context of the murder from deep politics researcher Mark Rabinowitz. Then we bring back lawyer and author William Pepper, who has acted as Sirhan Sirhan's legal counsel to talk about the case for a new trial. On this week's program, the truth behind the murder of Robert F. Kennedy, conspiracy and cover-up. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 1st, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Akin, the homeland of the Métis and the traditional territory of the Nehiyawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program was available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. In their complaint filed in March 2017, Zidane and Karim alleged they were included on the kill list as a result of algorithms used by the United States to identify terrorists. At a May 1st hearing in the case, Judge Rosemary Collier of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia questioned the U.S. government's assertion of authority to unilaterally kill U.S. citizens abroad. Collier repeatedly challenged government lawyers to explain why national security considerations outweigh a U.S. citizen's inclusion on the kill list with no right to notice and an opportunity to respond. Quote, Are you saying a U.S. citizen in a war zone has no constitutional rights? Collier asked Stephen Elliott, a Justice Department attorney. If a U.S. person is intentionally struck by a drone from the U.S., does that person have no constitutional rights to due process? No notice? Anything? That comes from the article, How Do You Get Off the U.S. Kill List? by Professor Marjorie Cohn, posted May 31st, originally appearing at truthout.org. Hitler was not undertaking actions that remotely threatened the human race as a whole. The Nazi leader was opposed to nuclear weapons on skewed racial grounds, quote-unquote Jewish physics, and because he foresaw that their arrival from early on was a severe threat to the planet. However outlandish it may seem, one could argue that a number of post-war leaders in America and elsewhere have indeed been more dangerous than Hitler. Rather than leading the way in disarming the unparalleled threat to the earth, nuclear weapons, U.S. leaders have done anything but often flaunting their arsenals through possible attack, intimidation, while leaving the way open to unforeseen accidents. 
Trump's policies of the continuing provocation of Russia, China, and North Korea, three nuclear states, is a game of cat and mouse with the highest possible stakes. That comes from the article, I have a nuclear button and my button works. Trump is far more dangerous than Hitler by Shane Quinn, posted May 31st. China is self-sufficient and has, as it is, a huge trade surplus vis-a-vis the U.S. China also controls the Asian market, having overtaken the U.S. already a couple of years ago. But what I really suspect is that Trump wants to discourage the world from using the yuan as a reserve currency, since as such, it lowers not only the value of the U.S. dollar, but it replaces the U.S. dollar as the de facto reserve currency in the world. Only 20 years ago or so, the U.S. dollar figured to 90% as a reserve currency in treasuries around the globe. Today, that percentage has shrunk to below 60%. That comes from the transcript of a press TV Skype interview with Peter Koenig under the headline, The U.S. Trade War with China. Trump wants to block countries from using the yuan as a reserve currency. Posted May 31st. With the 50th anniversary of the death of Robert Francis Kennedy approaching on the 6th of June, we must not forget the circumstances of his brutal murder that followed the cruel murder of his brother, JFK, and the vicious murder of MLK Jr. Today, RFK's case rises in importance because his son, RFK Jr., calls for a new investigation stating that he is not convinced by the original handling of the case and he has lost all confidence in the lone nut theory adopted by the prosecution of Sirhan. In doing so, RFK follows members of the King family who have long called for a new investigation into the facts of the murder of MLK. For decades, public, private, and scientific dissatisfaction with the case of JFK remains a massive lacuna in our understanding of the United States of America in the turbulent 20th century. Finally, the media-driven mantra of conspiracy theory has collapsed while the lone gunman theories of these three iconic political assassinations have disappeared under the stark gaze of scientific analysis and the testimony of credible eyewitnesses, including Paul Schrade, a genuine American hero who survived a bullet wound to his head at the side of RFK on that fateful evening in the pantry of the Ambassador Hotel half a century ago. That comes from the article, RFK's son, Robert Francis Kennedy Jr., I Don't Believe Sirhan Did It, by Michael Carmichael, Posted May 31st. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. What we're going to do in the rural areas of our country, what we're going to do for those who still suffer within the United States from hunger, what we're going to do around the rest of the globe, and whether we're going to continue the policies that have been so unsuccessful in Vietnam of American troops and American Marines carrying the major burden of that conflict. I do not want to, and I think we should move in a different direction. That was presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy speaking to his supporters at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles following his victory in the California primaries on June 5, 1968, minutes before he would be shot in the pantry of the hotel. A Palestinian emigre named Sirhan Sirhan 
would be blamed for the murder. Over the course of the next hour, we will examine the problems with this official story and the merits of the counter-narrative that a conspiracy involving government and the LAPD were responsible. To begin our probe, we bring in a frequent guest to the Global Research News Hour. Mark Rabinowitz is a writer, political activist, and ecological campaigner who has devoted substantial time and energy in investigating state crimes against democracy from the JFK assassination to 9-11 and linking them to the environmental and economic situations facing the world today. He joined us from Eugene, Oregon. Well, I was four years old when it, those happened, so I can't speak from personal experience, but my understanding, looking back, is that the MLK and RFK assassinations made politics in the United States much more bitter and sour. There were many millions who saw their removal from politics as a sign of hopelessness that political activity could not accomplish good things by themselves. Uh, famously, after Martin Luther King was killed, there were riots in dozens of cities that night. As a child, I lived in Washington, D.C. I have no memory of it, but where my parents worked, they could see the buildings burning not far from where they were. Robert Kennedy was killed right after he won the California primary. And literally within hours, he was killed. Less than hours, actually. Uh, many people have suggested it was likely he was going to win the nomination, and it's possible, hard to say for sure, that he would have beaten Richard Nixon. But a casual understanding of the 1968 Democratic Party convention in Chicago with the police riots and violence against the demonstrators, that would likely have been extremely different if Bobby was the nominee, or at least competing for the nomination. So it's part of the parallel universe that we didn't go into due to the political assassination. Yes, it's certainly interesting to reflect on what could have been. But I, I want to follow up on that point you're just making there. Uh, we have an official culprit, Sirhan Sirhan. And um, if it's true that he was not the lone assassin in the uh, uh, in, in the uh, murder of John of, of Robert Kennedy, uh, then he would have at the very least had help capable of covering their tracks and corrupting the investigation. And that suggests that powerful interests were involved. So could, could you outline for us what possible motives might those interests have had in wanting Bobby Kennedy killed? Well, it is well documented at this point that Bobby did not privately, personally believe the Warren Commission report, which claimed that a lone assassin killed President Kennedy. He had told his aides privately he wanted to reopen the investigation, but only the powers of the presidency would give him that ability to do so. Uh, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison the hero of Oliver Stone's film JFK, had warned that Bobby needed to be public about his concerns because his enemies understood what he really wanted to do. But unfortunately, he was hesitant to go public with them 
fearing that the media would beat him up, which they certainly would have done. And so when Bobby was killed, most people did not understand that he had a very different private position than he did in public. Garrison had cautioned that he thought Bobby's safety required him to be public about this, and sadly, he was proven correct. Mm. Bobby had also become quite radicalized to the topics of the war on Vietnam and the plight of poor people in America, which are the same motives that were used against Martin Luther King in Memphis. Uh, the war possibly being ended also was a factor in Kennedy, President Kennedy's removal from office. So the war machine did not tolerate political activists and politicians who could stand in its way. Mm. Yeah, there's. Uh, I think there was a famous quote by Lyndon Johnson about how he couldn't stop the uh, the Vietnam War because uh, too many, too much money was being made by uh, his associates, and so. And Lyndon Johnson, for all of his problems, uh, chose not to be reelected just before Bobby and Martin were killed. Mm -hmm. I will not serve if I am nominated. Is what he said. So one of the concerns I have is how can we move forward as a society understanding these things? And a month ago I was at a conference also with William Pepper and other uh, leading luminaries on these uh, concerns and gave a presentation at the Cyril Weck conference in Pittsburgh about how we could use truth and reconciliation, like in South Africa, to address these concerns, since the traditional approaches of prosecution and investigation by Congress have led nowhere and are likely to lead nowhere. The principles in these cases are long gone, but the institutions that they served are alive and well. So how can we shift our consciousness in order to acknowledge these crimes and move forward more from a sense of compassion and cooperation rather than prosecution and division. It's a long shot idea, but it's a better idea than hoping that more petitions to Congress will lead to a new investigation. That seems even less likely. Mm. Well, just to, to, since you brought it up, I, I mean, wh why would we have any faith in a truth and reconciliation approach when the powers that be seem to have been so successful in, in concealing and, and covering up these crimes and then making the media go to sleep? Well, that's a fair question. One of the possibilities with truth and reconciliation is not just to ask the CIA or other agencies to come clean about what their predecessors did, but it also applies fractally ourselves. One of the biggest secrets of the assassinations of the 1960s is that the perpetrators understood most people would be afraid to look at these details. So truth and reconciliation applies to our own hesitancy to admit that the CIA killed our president and the FBI killed Martin Luther King and so forth. I've run into lots of alleged dissidents, usually liberal or leftist, who are 
ready to accuse the government of all sorts of horrible things, except when it comes to JFK, MLK, RFK, 9-11 foreknowledge, and other domestic crimes. So the fear and the difficulty of admitting these things is as much of a problem for moving forward on these cases as it is asking the CIA to hold a press conference and say, oh, yeah, we did these things and we're sorry. Yes, true. I mean, it seems like a lot of people on, on the hard left, I mean, they'll just dismiss it as conspiracy theory or conspiracism, and uh, that's that's the end of the game. But uh, you, you're suggesting something that could potentially be a breakthrough in terms of what we're at least be, being willing to start discussing in a serious way. Well, and right now the biggest breakthrough with the RFK case is that his son, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., has finally gone public about understanding there was a second gunman who actually killed his father. The Washington Post on May 26, last weekend, ran a very interesting article, especially for a corporate newspaper, profiling Robert Kennedy's understanding in great detail, mentioning that RFK had a three-hour meeting with Sirhan Sirhan in his, at his prison and is, uh, joined the JFK research community. Uh, five years ago, he said in public in Dallas, of all places, that he understood that it, the Warren Commission was not true and the CIA was involved and recommended that all Americans, quote-unquote, read Jim Douglas's book, JFK and the Unspeakable, which I think most people in the JFK research world are in agreement that it's probably the very best book on the topic. It's certainly as good as any other. And for the Kennedy family to finally start to come clean and admit that they've understood this, that is earth-shaking news. It should be front page on the newspapers everywhere. I, I want to make a comparison because, as you know, in the case of Martin Luther King, his family had come forward with that special uh, uh, trial in 1999. It was a civil proceeding in which they found that uh, James Earl Ray could not have been the assassin of that it was a conspiracy that uh, killed Martin Luther King. That James Earl Ray was not guilty. That that the Kennedy, uh, excuse me, the, the the King family was on side, and and so here you, it seems like you have a parallel situation, but maybe the fact that it's a Kennedy adds a certain special significance to it? Well, that's hard to say. Um, one of the things that the King family said in their press conference after the verdict in Memphis is that they had done their job getting this material out, and it was up to the public, the rest of the citizens, to take this material and and amplify it, which sadly did not happen. But the media was one of the main obstacles. There were some media that gave a token mention of this, but then never mentioned it again. Uh, my favorite example, or least favorite example, is Democracy Now!, which has highlighted for 20 years how Martin Luther King wasn't just a civil rights activist, but was also a leader of the peace movement to stop the war on Vietnam, but they've gone out of their way to ignore these things. A couple days ago, they had another profile of 1968 where they mentioned Martin Luther King's assassination and even had an excerpt from one of the 
civil rights activist who testified at that trial, Reverend James Lawson, but they didn't include his mention that James O'Ray wasn't the killer. I've run into lots of peace and civil rights activists over the years who have been dedicated champions of these kind of causes for decades who've never, ever heard of the King family lawsuits and were astonished that they had not heard about it. So now that Robert Kennedy has spoken up, Robert Kennedy Jr. has spoken up saying that Sirhan Sirhan was not the lone gunman, it's up to the media to take this opportunity and amplify it everywhere if that is possible at this point. As you say, not just mainstream, but a lot of alternative media appear to be ignoring or distorting the coverage of the Kennedy assassinations and other high-profile crimes that implicate the U.S. government. Is there anything you'd like to say about your understanding of why that's happening? I think there's several different reasons. One is an ideological problem. There are a lot of left-leaning socialist-type uh, writers on the left who find it difficult to believe that rich people like John and Robert Kennedy could have become class traders and spoken up for the rights of poor people. Uh, there, you also have a cognitive dissonance going on that if they admit that these were not lone assassins but something more organized, then their paradigm of how politics works is inaccurate and is unlikely to be shifted by having more protests and voting for better candidates. It shows the inadequacies of that type of approach. And in a couple cases, you have certain people who get money from rather conservative philanthropic foundations and have a built-in disincentive to probe deeper. They can, for example, they can say they're against the war in Iraq, but they can't say why the war is happening, that it's to control world oil supplies as we go into energy decline. You won't see very many peace groups uh, even hint at that. I wanted to get your, your sense then of you know, if the, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, if it's in some sense distinct from any of the other assassinations. I mean, they... they they all had their impact, but was there anything particularly special or unique about the, Ken the, the, the younger Kennedy's assassination that uh, um, especially well, there are two main themes that I feel are unique compared to the others. One is it was more difficult to understand that it was a conspiracy because Sirhan Sirhan was clearly firing a gun. There's absolutely no question about it. And there were dozens of people in the room who saw him do that. He was wrestled to get him to stop. But the idea that there was a second gunman was largely a result of the forensics in the case. The number of bullets that were retrieved from all the people who were hit and from the room itself were more than fit in Sirhan's gun, therefore a second gunman. The coroner in Los Angeles uh, Mr. Noguchi found that RFK was killed at point-blank range, and the witnesses who were there 
mentioned that Sirhan Sirhan never got close enough to do that. You also have the disturbing implication that a, a presidential candidate on the cusp of potentially winning was shot down in a way that precludes political space for politicians who oppose war and want to redirect the resources into poverty. And that is extremely disturbing, even 50 years later. So that's, in some ways, even more disturbing than what happened in Dallas or even in Memphis. I mean, it's not like I want to rank one over the other. They're all different scenes of the same play, to use an analogy. So I'm wondering how the Kennedy brothers' assassinations, uh, the, the lessons learned, how, how do they inform the reformers and activists of uh, 50 years later? Well, most of the reformers and activists are hesitant to probe the deeper concerns. Uh, and the leaders of these movements studiously avoid talking about these kind of concerns and then ridicule any efforts to probe deeper. Some of the efforts to probe deeper are not very good, and some are excellent, but they're universally shunned. My view is that's not my flavor, but if they were successful in accomplishing good things while avoiding these topics, then maybe I would go along with it. But I think that's part of what led to Trump and the political collapse underway in the United States. We have more division, we have more bitterness, we've redirected trillions into endless warfare, which has damaged our own country as well as countless others. So when you have a lot of people wondering what happened, I think part of the place to start is with the three assassinations of the 60s and, and others. This is the high point of collective censorship that has led to our political collapse. So for those of us who are, you know, sincere in our desire to create a better world and, uh, you know, do, you know, genuine work that uh, upsets that uh, unjust power balance, uh, you would argue that we need to study these uh, assassinations and what they did and, and how it was done? Well, I think it's more about understanding what happened than studying the micro-analysis of the details of what happened. People who are focused on the micro-analysis, I support their efforts. Maybe further investigation will be fruitful, but we already know the basics of what happened. It's not that we need to have some grand national investigation to figure it out. These are not uh, mysteries. If you want to know every last detail, perhaps they're mysteries, but the essential aspects of what happened are well understood, even if they're difficult to admit in public. The late Gaten Fonzi, who was an investigator for the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the 1970s, said, we know what happened, we just don't have all the details. So understanding the precise mechanisms where Someone like Sirhan Sirhan could be manipulated and possibly hypnotized to do his role 
that would be interesting to understand. But the real story is that Bobby wasn't allowed to win. And the implication for us a half century later is there are limits on how someone running for high office can how far they can get. I have a lot of friends who think Bernie Sanders was he was gonna win and it was just the manipulation of the Democrats who stopped him from doing it. And I've had to respectfully disagree. Uh there's no way the system as presently constituted would have allowed someone like Bernie Sanders to win. He can campaign, he can raise his points and even win in a couple of state primaries, but there was no way he was going to be allowed to win the presidency. And that applies to other candidates who've had similar positions. Mark Rabinowitz, thank you very much for your insights. Uh, thanks for the opportunity again, and and I really hope that there's pressure everywhere to amplify Robert Kennedy Jr.'s uh, public statements about what happened. We've been speaking with Eugene, Oregon-based writer, political activist, and ecological campaigner Mark Rabinowitz. You can find his articles and links to authoritative research on the political assassinations of the 1960s by visiting his site, jfkmlkrfk.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. We're joined once again by Dr. William Pepper. He's a barrister in the United Kingdom and admitted to the bar in numerous jurisdictions in the United States of America and the author of three books on the assassination of Martin Luther King. He's also acted as counsel for Robert F. Kennedy's accused murderer, Sirhan Sirhan. He joins us now from New York on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Kennedy's assassination to help us explore that case. Welcome back, Dr. Pepper. Okay, it's good to hear you, Michael. Now, I understand you'd met Bobby Kennedy in person. What were your impressions of the man? Well, I, I knew Bobby Kennedy back in 1964. I was, uh, I was quite young, but I was his citizen's chairman uh, in uh, Westchester County, New York, when he ran for the Senate. And um, so I, I had basically control of, uh, of, that, of that aspect of his, of his senatorial campaign. Uh, at that point in time, um, I didn't like him personally. I, I I thought he was arrogant. I thought that he uh, was uh, out of touch with the needs of the poor people uh, in America, and that uh, his, his his views were were quite restricted in that respect. But the Bob Kennedy they killed in 1968 was really quite a different person. He had. He had traveled into Appalachia and areas of the country. He had seen things he never saw before in terms of how people were forced to live. And uh, he developed a degree of empathy uh, that was remarkable. So he was really quite a different person uh, in, uh, in 
the uh, considering those experiences over the four-year period. How did you come to be convinced of the innocence of his accused murderer, Sirhan Sirhan? Well, by examining the uh, the evidence, I was asked to look at the evidence of the case, and the number one piece of evidence was Tom Noguchi, the medical examiner, Tom Noguchi's uh, autopsy report of the senator, uh, and it showed that uh, uh, the senator was hit with three bullets at powder burn range in the rear, fired from the rear and slightly upward, with the with the final shot uh, entering. Uh, his his head right up, right by the right ear, about an inch, inch and a half uh, from behind the right ear. Uh, a fourth bullet went through the lip, uh, uh, shoulder pad. Um, uh, there was testimony of upwards of 40 people available, witnesses, all of whom put Sirhan in front of the senator. Uh, between three and five feet in the front of him. So there was no way that he could have fired the, uh, the fatal shot uh, at Senator Kennedy. It was just, just it was impo- impossible. As I looked further, I found out that his own, his defense counsel, really joined the prosecution team. Uh, Grant Cooper was his name. And he was under himself, he was under a pending indictment at that time for the uh, illegal possession of grand jury minutes in another case. So he was really uh, effectively working under the control of the prosecution. And when he addressed the jury for the first time, he said, we are not here to prove our client, my uh, client innocent of this crime. He is guilty of it. We were only here to save his life uh, from uh, a, an order of capital punishment. So uh, the evidence was just so powerful that uh, it, to me, was inconceivable that if an evidentiary hearing uh, was allowed or a jury trial was allowed where the evidence would be put in, into play, there was, no, there was no question that he would have to be found not guilty of that crime. Now, you, you just mentioned Grant Cooper, and uh, he, he clearly he, there, there was an irregularity there. And uh, at least in theory, you know, everyone is entitled to a fair trial. How is it that uh, that aspect of it, even if you believe that Sirhan Sirhan was guilty, he, he didn't get a fair trial? And so how do you explain the, uh, the inability for this to be addressed through a formal process and appeal? Well, they, there's never been an evidentiary hearing. They blocked us every step of the way. I've been involved in the case since 2007, and we've been unsuccessful. Uh, and you're asking a very good question. How, 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 is, how does that happen? We have filed very strong briefs on appeal. I don't believe they've been read, or if they've been read, they just have been dis- dismissed out of hand. And uh, that's... that's uh, a sign of the the weakness and the failure of the criminal justice system in the United States. Um, it's a, it's a political case. It's a high profile case, and uh, there was just no deliberate in, intention to to, uh, to grant uh, our appellate briefs, and so they. Uh, they have denied us all the way to the 
Supreme Court, and we are at this point, we've exhausted our domestic remedies, and we are at this point uh, filing uh, a petition with the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And uh, we're, <clears throat> we're hopeful that we may get a hearing uh, before that commission, which is a part of uh, the requirements of the, uh, uh, and the undertakings of the United States uh, in the uh, Organization of American States Treaty. Uh, it's, it's a devastating situation, and I'm sure that this, this occurs again and again in cases uh, where verdicts are simply uh, effectively locked in all the way up the appellate structure. Mm. Do you uh, you have any further comments? I mean, you just mentioned uh, in the, the the evidence of powder burns and the, the idea that uh, Bobby Kennedy was shot from behind when uh, Mr. Sirhan was clearly in front of him as confirmed by multiple witnesses. But there were ballistics reports, were there not, that uh, – well, there, there was some more recent I- indications – that uh, there were far more bullets fired than were actually could have been in Mr. Sirhan's gun. Do you, do you want to maybe speak a little bit more to these sorts of uh, um, you know, the, the ballistics uh, evidence? Yes, uh, Philip von Prague, who's an uh, audiologist and, a, and an audio specialist, using highly sophisticated uh, equipment. Uh, was able to ascertain on the basis of, of a tape recording uh, that was uh, made at the time that 13 bullets were fired. Um, Sirhan's gun, of course, only had eight, but that's beside the point because Sirhan was cued to stand up uh, by the, his controller. He was very heavily under uh, chemical and and orthodox hip- hypnosis. And on the queue, he stepped up and was fulfilling the role of distracting everyone by firing, uh, at what he saw <coughs> was a, a target that he had recently fired at, the, at a pistol range, is where, where he had been that afternoon. And he discharged two bullets. After he fired the two bullets, his arm was pinned to the to the uh, surrounding table, and he 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 was had no control over the over the gun hand, but he pulled uh, kept pulling the trigger, and bullets went flying all over the place. But he shot two bullets only, only two bullets, and uh, uh, there were a total of thirteen fired, which of course included the four bullets that were fired at Senator Kennedy by the real uh, assassin. So uh, Phil von Prague was able to uh, put the number fired at that amount, but in addition to that, he was able to show with his, his equipment that the bullets were fired in two different directions. Uh, the ones into the senator uh, were fired in, a, uh, direct, in the opposite direction of the two bullets that were fired by Sirhan in front. Uh, so the audiological evidence, ballistic evidence, that was uh, 
and not introduced and not con- not put forward at the trial uh, is another indication of the of the existence of the second shooter who fired the fatal bullet. Now, I th- you you alluded to the uh, idea that Sirhan Sirhan had been uh, under heavy uh, influence, uh, you know, chemically and. Uh, hypnotic suggestion and whatnot. And that's probably one of the more, I don't know, uh, contentious aspects of this uh, case, at least to the, the casual observer, because you're invoking the whole idea of MK Ultra and the Manchurian candidate, like a real life Manchurian candidate, somebody weaponized to fulfill some sort of a role. Um, I, I was wondering if you could maybe help put some meat to that, something that, that like, can we independently confirm that he was under that kind of influence, uh, given that uh, he himself admits no memory of, of what happened that day. That's his story, anyway. So what... Yes, yes. Well, we use the probably the world's leading ex- expert on hypnosis and, uh, and, and, and the MKUltra experience. MKUltra was a CIA program, of course, that was uh, in, in effect in the 1960s. Uh, where hypnosis was used. We had Dr. Daniel Brown uh, of Harvard, associate professor in the Department of Psychology, uh, who spent over 70 hours with Sirhan and uh, worked with him both uh, under hypno- had him under hypnosis and also uh, in, in a free state. And Dan Brown's uh, reports were are a part of our own analysis of the case, uh, and and our our putting forth a defense. And Dan was able to ascertain that Sirhan was in a clinic for a period of two weeks when he dropped out of sight. He no one knew where he was. He 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 allegedly had had, had fallen off a horse, and he was in a clinic getting a a, a treatment for that, but. In fact, that, that experience uh, exposed him to both chemical and regular hypnotic procedures. So he was well prepared uh, as uh, to, to be the patsy distractor uh, that that functioned uh, on the on the evening after being effectively picked up by a woman in a black polka dot dress who. Um, uh, guided him through the whole uh, the whole uh, event, and on cue had him had him stand up and distract by firing those those two bullets. So and that was it was Dad Brown's uh, analysis after o- over seventy hours of of uh, working with Sirhan that that was what happened and and how he was prepared. So it's contentious. Of course, it's contentious if no one wants to believe that that uh, that is possible. But it certainly is possible, and the CIA developed uh, the, uh, the the techniques with great sophistication. That was a part of their MK Ultra <coughs> uh, program, and Sirhan fell right into it on a one to five. Dan. Uh, Five being the, the, the highest uh, possibility of being susceptible to hypnosis. On the one to five, Dan put 
Sirhan had a five. And there's no question in our mind that that was what happened and that Dr. Brown is correct. You mentioned uh, the uh, involvement of a woman in a black polka dot dress. Now, this the, the existence of this person was confirmed by multiple independent eyewitnesses. And I, I don't – could you comment on who that person was? I mean, did she appear in any official reports? Uh, well, we don't know who the person was at this point. Um she was obviously someone who was sent for and used for that particular purpose. And as you said, a number of eyewitnesses confirmed her existence and her presence. Um, there are some there are some minor references to her uh, in official reports. They tried to determine that she was a, uh, a another woman uh, who was there and identified her that as a, as a as a member of the Kennedy team, even who was there, but that 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 was was a a false effort, and very clearly uh, the other woman uh, was not involved and was even on crutches at the time. So uh, there was a great deal of speculation as to the the woman in the black polka dot dress. But as she as she fled uh, the pantry room right after the killing, she ran down a flight of stairs and uh, with a couple of her colleagues and uh, ran past a woman named Serrano, uh, who was a witness, and said, "We shot him. We've shot him." And uh, when asked who they've shot, she said, "We've shot Senator Kennedy." And then she continued, they continued uh, uh, out on the parking lot and ran past a New York couple called Bernstein and said the same thing, we've shot him, we've shot him. And uh, uh, this woman then disappeared into the night uh, and uh, has, has not been found, located or, or surfaced. We, we believe we had an idea who she was, but... Uh, that is, that is uh, still subject to the investigation. Mm. You you mentioned that the, this uh, young woman Serrano who who heard that uh, that that admission of uh, you know we shot him. Um, she's not. Uh, I mean, she's still alive, but she's not willing to speak any further on this uh, this whole subject. And I think it's kind of an interesting aspect because. You know, there are indications that she had been, uh, there had been efforts to get her to rethink what she said she saw, and she seemed to stick to her story. It, it, can you talk about that, uh, you know, efforts to, by you, you, the official authorities, to address her um, inconvenient testimony? Yes, they brutally, they brutally interrogated her, did everything they could to, to get her try to get her to change her story and to uh, make a more, <laughs> you use the word inconvenient, make a more convenient 
uh, statement that would be compatible with the official uh, the, the official account. And it's unfortunate that she went through that kind of experience. And but it's indicative of the efforts of the of the local law enforcement officials uh, to cover up what really happened. Uh, you know, in addition to that, they took away ceiling tiles, uh, they took away door panels that had bullet holes in them, anything to, that indicated that there were more bullets fired. Uh, they, re- they removed evidence from the crime scene uh, in, a, in, a, in an effort to cover up what really happened, actually. That's very interesting because if you recall in our last interview about the death of Martin King, you mentioned the corruption within the Memphis Police Department and not only the failure to get to the truth, but efforts to cover up the crime. Could you comment uh, further on, on the LAPD's investigation of the Kennedy assassination and any parallels between the, the way the LAPD and the Memphis Police Department uh, investigated these high crimes? Yeah, I mean, there are similar in the efforts of local law enforcement to cover up the truth and to uh, effectively establish an official account uh, of of the assassination, which involves a patsy. Uh, And uh, in in the case of Martin King, of course, it was James Earl Ray, who I represented the last 10 years of his life. And uh, that story is so now so officially destroyed that uh, uh, the evidence that I put forward in my final book on the King case is called the, the Plot to Kill King. The evidence set out there is so powerful and so strong that there's just no way that uh, the official story could stand. So we, and we have a similar situation with respect to uh, the assassination of Bob Kennedy two months later. The evidence is so so overwhelming, despite the really hard, heavy efforts of the Los Angeles police uh, to cover up, that if uh, a hearing or a trial were ever allowed where the evidence could be put forward, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, Sirhan would be found not guilty. But that, that of course, is a struggle. You have an official story, and you have official uh, efforts uh, to make sure that that story stands up as best as they can, and they do everything possible uh, to uh, affect that result. Now, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, you want to, uh, pr- you're presenting the evidence uh, to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Now, that's under the umbrella of the Organization of American States, which is seen by some as a, a construct furthering U.S. colonial dominance of the Americas. Uh, I mean, I discussed that in a previous show, uh, you know, a report they put together that uh, seems skewed in its examination of the unrest currently in Nicaragua. So I'm wondering, is it reasonable to assume that uh, this construct would be any more accommodating of a new trial or a new hearing of the evidence than traditional U.S.-based courts have been? Well, I think, I think your analysis is, um, is apt. Um, it, may, it may be uh, suited to a different time. 
uh, and that's the hope that we have. There is now uh, increasing amounts of skepticism, uh, cynicism, and even uh, open hostility uh, toward the United States for for its uh, efforts in Latin and South America in support of uh, uh, oligarchic or dictatorial or regimes that are more sympathetic to American uh, effective colonization of the of the region. The United States used to have a great deal of influence over the Inter-American Commission as well as uh, the Inter-American Court. Um, I, I think that has waned considerably uh, and at this point in time. So we do have uh, and and perhaps uh, naively, but we do have hope and that the Inter-American Commission will give us an opportunity to put uh, evidence on the record uh, and, uh, and, and effectively uh, for, the, for the world to see and for the American criminal justice system to see uh, with respect to this case. But um, I think you're quite right. It is, in many ways, it's a difficult uh, task that we've undertaken. So uh, I don't know how how it will come out. But we do expect uh, a ruling within the next 60 days. They have had this 213-page uh, petition now for uh, 10 months. And we understand we will get uh, some kind of ruling within that period of time. Now, William Pepper, uh, I'm sure you're aware that Robert F. Uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, has uh, been reported as not believing the official story of the Kennedy assassination in the Washington Post of all places. And of course, you know, Robert Kennedy Jr. is a pretty prominent personality in his own right. I just wanted to ask what you make of that admission and if that may change the playing field in any way. Well, I think it's certainly supportive uh, of of the truth and the search for truth. And I think Bob uh, Kennedy Jr., along with uh, Paul Schrade, who was a victim uh, at, uh, of a shooting on the night, uh, I think both of them uh, have provided a basis for uh, an effort to, to bring the truth forward. So I think, yes, I think to the extent that after a long period of time, uh, Bobby, uh, Kennedy Jr. has, uh, uh, had the opportunity to evaluate all the evidence and in good conscience has now come out and made, uh, the, the statement, um, of support. Uh, I think it's, not immediately known, but uh, his sister, Kathleen Kennedy, who's the eldest of the Kennedy children and a former lieutenant governor of the state of Maryland, uh, has also come out now in support of, uh, uh, of, of uh, the search for the truth and in support of her brother. She has made that quite clear. Just as a, a, a a final thought. Uh, I was wondering if you have any intuitions about how history might have played out differently if Bobby Kennedy had not been killed that fateful evening. 
Oh, yes. I think well, there would have been uh, an effort at least to dramatically change the socioeconomic and international uh, position of the United States uh, in the world and uh, and at home. If, if Bob Kennedy had been elected president, uh, the war in Vietnam would have ended much more quickly. The oil depletion allowance would have been ended, the 27.5% tax credit uh, on oil that's removed from American soil would have, uh, would have been ended. I think the Federal Reserve System would have got, undergone a serious examination and probably would have been replaced uh, as, uh, as well. So we would have had a different uh, position in the world as well as in the United States. And the, the oligarchic forces in this country, in the United States, the powerful and the wealthy, uh, would have been impacted greatly uh, by a Kennedy administration. And that, of course, is the reason why he, he was killed, why he was taken out of the picture. William Pepper, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for making yourself available to address this important topic. Uh, you're welcome. I hope you can distribute these thoughts uh, as widely as possible so that uh, we have more informed people uh, that a, a democracy requires. We've been speaking with New York City-based lawyer and author William Pepper. His publications on the topics of the Martin King and Kennedy assassinations can be found at the site williampepper.com. That's it for this week's show. You've been tuned to the Global Research News Hour, which airs weekly on radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. Our shows are available for download from the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. We hope you'll tune in again next week. We leave you now with audio from a famous address given by Senator Kennedy to an audience at the University of Kansas on March 18, 2018. Thank you for listening. If the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America, except why we are proud that we are Americans.